0: It's February 11th, 2021. This is Rook. In the context of contemporary Iran, are human rights and any semblance of gender equality even attainable at all under this Islamic Republic, or is the only hope to be found in complete overthrow of the regime? And what can we learn from the history of activism in Iran over the last century to instruct us on how change may come? Iranian-American historian and author Nayar Tohidi, the founding director of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at California State University, joins me for a feature conversation coming up. Plus. Keon is here with a new edition of It's All Persian to Us, and Chef Haas is back with Hospitality. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 84 of Rokhashda Duchar in Farsi Kiyan.
1: Your Farsi is getting better. I'm trying to help
0: you. Hope you are keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Salam, dustana aziz. O min var hastam ki What does Ooh. this hideous They're word
2: mean?
0: They're laughing because I'm, I was practicing that word <laughs> just before we hit the airwaves. I barely even know what it means. It means like kind of sharp. I hope you're mizun. Yes. Qibraq. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> no. Professor Nayere Tohidi coming up. She's a a brilliant academic and historian who spent basically a lifetime working on issues of equality, gender, uh, human rights in the context of the last century in Iran. I'm really looking forward to as comprehensive a conversation as we could have in one show, one interview about whether uh, human rights and gender equity can actually be achieved in any real way under the current Islamic regime in Iran. And if not, what value is there to incremental progress that may be made in the in the meantime? Lots to ask her. She's coming up in just a little while. Nayere Tohidi. Hello, the fabulous Kian.
1: Hello, Gian. You
0: have your color cap on. Yes, I do. Again, I I, you mean business, when I you put that mean, baseball cap I on, on. I put it on. I'm coming
1: from a bike ride indoors, of course. Right. I just got a bike, so.
0: You got another bike?
1: I got a new. How bike. How many bikes do you <laughs> have? <does> one girl. <laughs> no, need? No, listen. Uh, I was waiting for the gyms to open up. I was like, okay, enough mm. is enough. They're never going to open. Just so in the meantime, you thought you would buy new bicycles. I just yourself. I bought new weights, bicycle, pull up. Mi- uh, I just bought a whole. Do you new bike gym. in the middle of the winter? Uh, indoors, like the indoor stationary bike. Oh, you got to. see. You got an I, exercise bike. And I throw on my high uh. heels to secure my <laughs> foot. into that's them. right.
0: That's right. <laughs> that the Persian men invented. Hello, Groovy Shia.
2: Hello. Sir.
0: And hello, Captain Reza, the Uh, birthday
2: boy!
3: uh, Oh, (laughs) here right now. Oh, my God. Thank you,
0: Shia. Thank you, yes. Shia was so funny. It it was was pulling teeth to get him to play that version. He was like, I found an alternative version of the song that has musical jazz. And I was like, no, Shia, just play the one that we have at Mamouni's that we can clap to. Thanks
2: so much. Happy birthday. Thanks, buddy. Happy birthday. Uh, Of course,
0: we know it's your birthday because our lobby is filled with about 200 (laughs) balloons that your girlfriend sent over
2: here. He's doing
1: something right if he's getting that big show. Oh, yeah. hey, I'm there's crying.
0: flowers, there's balloons. Oh, I mean, trying. there's a pedicure happening in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs>
2: yeah. Gender roles wow. for you. Play
0: the song again, Shia.
3: Oh my God. Uh, here
0: we go. Wow. It's a, Let it's this be a lesson to the non Iranians.
3: <laughs> yeah. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that, that, is that my theme song now? It's right. <laughs> your theme song for
0: today. Actually, your birthday was yesterday, wasn't
3: it? Was yesterday, it? yeah, it was. But we didn't have a show
0: yesterday. People uh people who were keenly tuning in for uh Dr. Nayera Tohidi oh have already, already given up on the show.
1: <laughs> it gets better, <laughs> trust oh me. Why are they oh playing God.
0: that over and over again? By the way, who was that written by Keon?
1: Uh Andy. No,
0: no, 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 no. no, no. You're a rook No no. You're, you're,
1: uh, what's his name? Ah, oh, come on. Uh, we, he we had get recognition. His, we
0: had his son. No, 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 it wasn't written by Farid talon Oh no. no. We had the writer of that this iconic Happy Reza birthday.
1: Sar-
2: we okay. had his
0: son on the show.
2: Come on, guys. Have- right? You yeah. yes, had
0: Reza, right? Reza? Reza's the son. What's his yeah. father's name? But what was his Reza last name? Reza Rohani. Reza Rohani. And his father uh, is?
3: No.
2: Shira Vaan,
0: Shira Vaan.
1: Just,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no the full name yeah, not just Shiravon I
1: didn't know I was right. signing An- up for quiz today yeah,
0: yeah sorry sorry I won't quiz you about things that have been on the show which you work on and sit here
1: I'm and listen bad to. with names right
3: right this is by the way the best birthday ever so far oh, like attacking thanks. Keon and <laughs> oh, thanks a lot man oh my god
0: <laughs> I have a jazz version of this <laughs> from Yay! the 1970s Run by some jazz musician. Wow. We are on a. Oh, nice, a nice it moves, Kate. Nice moves. <laughs> I was
1: going to ask, Reza, is it still your best birthday yet? Are you sure about <laughs> that? So and far, I think it's great. your worst
3: I at this say. point.
0: <laughs> We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Uh, depending on where you're listening to us, let us uh, let you know that we're coming to you on SoundCloud. That's an option. Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, and Telegram. And we have just launched our patron circle. So um, this is, uh, we're we're doing this in an attempt to uh, keep the lights on, keep the show growing, uh, and do our best to, to satisfy our mission that we've put out there of building this uh project of Iranian diaspora identity. And we don't want the show to descend into just a bunch of Mm -hmm. a series of advertisements. (laughs) So, um, so we started a patron circle where people can help out by becoming a patron of Rook and, and, uh, give us some, you know, a donation that is a monthly donation. I've become kind of obsessed. With the patrons and hoping that we get patrons on board and and um, like judging my friends based on whether they <laughs> feel like <laughs> like we only just launched it right, so I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. This is a true story and, and and asking her, I was like, oh hey, have you become a patron of of Rook yet? And she was like, oh yeah, totally. I'm I'm a big fan. I'm like. You know, no, but did you become a patron? She's like, no, I, I listen to every show. I subscribed, you know? and
1: I—that's not enough. And I'm like,
0: well, I never.
1: What kind of? <laughs> you mean are you, you, you haven't signed
0: up for ten bucks a month? Yeah, so I shamed her into. I, uh, <laughs> I have to check the list and see whether she's uh, become a patron or not. You and know?
1: this is our way not to sell our souls to a big network. We want to remain as authentic as possible. Absolutely, so this yeah, is The yeah. only way to do it.
0: Actually, we, uh, truth be told, uh, we even had uh, a networks uh, sniffing around to yes. license Rook, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and we said no. We were d- doing this independently. So, the you know, if you like what we do and you enjoy the content, and uh, and if we promise to never play that Tabalod song again,
2: <laughs> please sign up for well, our this. patron
0: circle. You go to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. It says uh, support us up there, red red button. You hit that, and you can become a friend uh, for five bucks a month, BFF for ten bucks, idol, fifty dollars a month. You become a rock star, a hundred a hero, and two hundred and fifty dollars a month a legend. And you know, I didn't mention this before. Thoughtful Nagin was saying, You got to tell them what they get, you know, so because Thoughtful Nagin obviously she's thoughtful she thinks of these things right (laughs) uh just like savvy roham is savvy that's right. Uh, I see Savvy Roham in the background there. Um, thoughtful uh, Nagin said, uh, uh, tell, tell people what they get because they're not just, you know, helping us out, but we have this quid pro quo. So for $50, you get access to Rook events, our newsletter, special things we'll only offer online to the patrons uh, at that level or more. And the satisfaction, of course, you know, knowing you support us and our community. But you also get merchandise. This was... <laughs> I, I didn't actually, I don't know who, like how this got green lit, but at the Rockstar level, at the $50 a month level, you get a Rook mask, uh, get all that stuff, a Rook mask, and a Rook hoodie. Okay. And the hoodies are amazing. I mean, Shai has seen them. They're like really beautifully made. They're good, good quality. They've got this like beautiful Rook design with lots of colors and everything. So I um, so I was asking, I was saying that like thoughtful, Nagin, what Nagin, how how much does it cost us to make these hoodies? <laughs> and she was like, oh, each is about $50. <laughs> like, so then we gotta send these, like we're losing money. Yep. <laughs> I don't understand how this happened, you know? At the end but, it
3: works out, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's what, that's a, it's, it's so eat-on-e.
1: It is a great gift idea though, might I add. What I mean, is that? Well, the hoodies or right. merchandise in general, that with Valentine's Day coming up, I mean, what that's better right. way to say wow. I love you with a Rook sweater? absolutely <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> absolutely there's nothing, absolutely, says absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. that says uh, uh well but you know so anyway if you become a patron you get these things um the heroes and legends get this special rook bracelet that is beautiful Mm, yeah it's it's a design we're going to put it on our uh uh, site so people you can see it if you go to the patrons page but you know you don't have to you know at at whatever level i mean uh for for friends out there and and you know even five dollars a month anything like that helps us our our latest rock star by the way a woman named uh named rahele sarbaziha sarbaziha
2: I think so, yeah.
0: Uh, Anyway, she's better known as Dr. Rahi. She is a young doctor of integrative aesthetics. She has clinics in Beverly Hills, in Soho, in New York City, in Miami. Uh, She's super active and popular on Instagram as Dr. Rahi MD. Thanks to Dr. Rahi for supporting the community and us here at, uh, at Rook as our latest rock star. Uh, I'm going to mention some folks who've signed up uh, as our BFFs later in the show and give them a shout out. By the way, uh, uh, Captain Reza, a birthday boy, has your girlfriend become a patron of Rook yet? Not yet. Because if she spent just a little bit less money on uh, <laughs> on the thousands of balloons that are uh, this captain Reza, i I, don't know I mean this girlfriend, I, first of all, I introduced him to her. She's a no, friend of mine, really? yeah, actually true. I, and is, I can't believe true. I mean, he turns up in new clothing every day. <laughs> he like he looks like a bit he, she's had his oh, teeth whitened, you know, he's got so fancy odd. shades. I mean, the guy he's hit some kind of wow. jackpot.
2: You oh know, nicely done. She's got good
3: taste. What can I say? And that's I just don't. Me. I
0: mean, I say this with love. You know, you're my brother, but I don't know what she gets out of this. <laughs> you know, she's she's this amazing woman who buys them all this stuff. She's so dating Captain yeah, Reza. I mean, so you know.
2: while She sends me a <laughs> that's right that's Hey, right. listen, she She, knows she, she tries to keep everybody happy. Aww, here. what a I think it's it.
0: the, the relationship is clearly working out for you. Oh, it's great. Uh, but uh, but I think she's it's time she became a patron. <laughs> <laughs> She's, if she spent one one hundredth of what she spends on the shoes she buys you, <laughs> she could. Uh, anyway, no, you're you're very lucky. Happy birthday again, Thank you uh, Captain much. Reza. Okay. And uh, you're as tip at the oh. tender age of. Uh, are we allowed to say your age? Sure, go ahead. 33 years old. Wow.
3: He's yeah? hit the 25. big 3 3.
2: Yeah.
3: That's, that's a yeah. good age. Big 3 3. Mm. <laughs> How does it feel? It feels. Um, Nothing actually, it doesn't feel <laughs> like anything. I feel nothing. I feel nothing. <laughs> well, I'm you're I'm, numb. Um, <laughs> yeah. Khomeini, when he was landing in Iran back then, he felt nothing. Mm, no, nice. but uh, excellent I, reference. <laughs> yes, thank you. Hey, we're uh, ta- we're going to be talking about politics <laughs> yes, with our yes, guests, yes, yes. so nice segue. Huh. But yeah, it didn't, it doesn't feel that much different. Well, this from year Turkey in
1: general too. doesn't really count, does it? I this don't know where it went 2020, 2020. 2021. It just kind of went poof and nothing true. happened. True,
3: true, true.
0: true. Um. Thanks. Thanks.
1: <laughs> so I'm saying his age this I past see. year doesn't really count. I see. So <laughs> he's still I'm 32. Saying. Yes, you still don't 32 in my story. books. There yes. we
0: yeah. go. Uh, you're getting old, Reza. Let's face it. There's no <laughs> doubt. There's no two ways about it. Um, so Nayere Tohidi coming up for a feature chat. By the way, Chef Haas coming up later in the show, and he's got uh, – uh, he'll. No doubt have something that he he's doing these videos now that you can see at RookMedia.com as well um, I don't know Savi Roham. Ask Savvy Roham if he knows what the chef is gonna talk about today
3: Oh Savvy. So oh. he's gonna talk about... Uh, move in,
0: move in Savvy Roham. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Uh, he's gonna talk about Gourmah Gorma? Korma. Uh, gorma. Oh, korma. Oh, gorma. Yeah, it's a way to uh, preside uh, meat Hmm. Oh, to braise you, meat yeah ah yes yes yeah. so he's going to talk about braising uh, meat yeah, yeah to keep it for longer as he says forever oh, see. oh. Yeah. how to keep meat forever somehow oh, thank freezing
1: you freezing it I suppose in the freezer no <laughs> he's oh, going to he's going to teach way. us
0: how to use a freezer
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we created the yakchar. we needed <laughs> yeah. it
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. okay uh, so when do you have more Savi Raham yes yeah, go but, ahead I just want to say that if people want to watch the video afterwards. Uh, it's a perfect video uh, to how to do it. And it looks very delicious. Oh, mm. okay. Savvy Rom does the editing on the, the new videos that uh, Chef Haas is making. So the, and uh, and I think Shaya, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Groovy Shia, has done yes. some music for this video, right? <laughs> Everyone's coming together. It's like, it's a wonderful life at the end of the movie. Everyone's <laughs> together making the, why are you laughing Shaya? Did you not do the music?
2: Yes, I mean, yes, I played something. <laughs> he's <laughs> being humble. He's, <laughs> he's, he's doing I swear,
0: he was like, I said, oh, Hey, Shia, can you play some, you know, do some sort of piano thing underneath the uh, Chef Haas? Because Sh- Chef Haas had asked for it underneath his video. And, and, uh, so Shia goes, uh, hmm, he's like, Well, we could play some Boba Camini or something. No, I was like, No, no, you, you know, you just, just write something, do something. So, um, So he goes, he comes in and goes, "Um, I came up with something, but I don't think it is very, you know, and and he plays it to me. It's like this amazing, like. I uh, believe you. This ahead of its time
3: jazz piece, you know, Keith Jarrett piano (laughs) player. I don't
1: think I know a guy more humble than Shia Jr. It's so,
3: it's so good. And that's his strategy. He undersells it and it's amazing. So when you hear it, you'll be like, dude. Right, right. right. It's really good.
0: So, I mean, tune in for the show. Chef Haas' segment just to listen to Shai's <laughs> piano blend. Uh, Chef Haas coming up, Naira Tohidi coming up, but first, it's Thursday. You know what that means. She's a dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym fanatic, a kook who can be erratic, but lovable, smart, and funny, and on a journey to discover what we've actually discovered. Here we go, Batcha It's all Persian to us with Kian Nademi.
1: All right, so Valentine's Day is coming up. Mm. Well, did you know there's actually a Persian version of this day that started in 2000 BC, called Sepandar Mazgon. Try saying that five times. It's a day celebrating love, friendship, and earth predating the first Valentine's Day by 2,400 years.
0: Sipandar
1: Sepandarmazgon. Sipandar Mazgon.
0: Sipandar Mazgon. Sipandar <laughs> <laughs> no, Try five go. times,
1: Sipandar <laughs> <laughs> well, Apparently
0: you and like, I can't say it once. What is it, Shaya?
2: Sipandar Mazgon. Listen to the way he says it, Sipandar <makes laughs> <it it masgon.
1: laughs> <laughs> Wow, So brilliant. Uh, and it falls only days after Valentine's Day. Coincidence? Mm-hmm. I think not. Mm-hmm. Speaking of coincidences, Allow me to share with you the greatest love story ever told. The tale goes that there was once a young boy from a wealthy and well-known family who falls in love with a girl from another wealthy and well-known family. The two families disapprove of the young couple's love so the boy goes absolutely mad. The couple's love is ultimately forbidden and so they can never be together. This eventually leads to a tragic end for the young lovers. Their love for one another was so deep that death was their only refuge, Mm. because death was the only way they could be together. Though their physical bodies were no longer alive, their immortal love would live on forever. Sound familiar?
0: I know where you're going with this.
1: Well, why don't you guess?
0: Okay, because I I know, well, I know this is the story of uh, Lely and, um, match right? right? Yes, but, yes, but but now that you're reading it, I, I realize that it's, it sounds like the story of Romeo and yes, Juliet. Yes,
1: yes, I'm not talking about Romeo and Juliet. This is the story of Layli and Majnun, wow. or Layla and Majnun, depends on uh, w- which culture you're reading from. This beautiful tale was first written in 1188 AD by the great Persian poet Nizami Ganjavi. He was a man known as the greatest romantic poet in Persian literature, and his epic love story predates Shakespeare's by 400 years. Oh. So, in Ganjavi's version of the tale, it's set in the Middle Eastern desert, as opposed to the lush city of Verona, Italy. But the basics are the same: love at first sight. The lovers are kept separated by their parents. The women get weaker, the longer they're kept away from their lovers. The men get crazier, the longer they're kept from their lovers. Father of the daughter uh, father of the girl arranges for her to marry someone else. The couple can't live without each other, blah, blah blah. And so this all ends with a big kaboom, when the lovers tragically die in the exact same place one after another, Which is how this story got the nickname of Romeo and Juliet of the East but if you ask me it should go the other way around the Layla or leili and Majnum of the west and so both stories share the same themes tragic love family rivalry eternal love etc cetera, etc cetera. is this all just a big coincidence mm. I don't know. Um, well, I'll tell you. Though. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Sorry. What are
0: we trying to say? We of invented, course it's not. Uh,
3: Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> uh, well, see, so,
0: So, we, I mean, when are we filing a suit against Romeo and Juliet for
1: <laughs> copyright, you, copyright infringement? Tell you, Persian pl- copyright. <laughs> if plagiarism existed back then, who knows? Right. So, though the parallels of the two tragic love stories are undoubtedly there, I'll let you be the judge. Did Sir Shakespeare borrow his famous love story from our very own? Nizami Ganjavi. Hey, what do we know? It's all Persian to us.
0: <laughs> well, Shakespeare's only, uh, you know, 500 years ago, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. so. Uh, Lely and Majnun were wandering around a couple thousand years exactly. ago, you're saying.
1: Well, it's, it predates it by 400 years. I mean, that's a significant amount of time. And to be quite clear, during the Crusades, a lot of uh, information was being transferred from the East over to the West. Mm-hmm. So who knows, maybe at some point some soldier came across some epic love story right. and took it back to the West. Uh, we we don't know. that is
0: considered the, the, the ultimate love story. It right? is,
1: yes. And just a little side uh, fun fact for you. Eric Clapton's idea for the song, Layla, actually comes from this story mm-hmm. of Layla and Majnoon. Oh. Cool. Yeah. Have you heard that song? You must have, of course. Yes.
3: <laughs> yes, can. He doesn't just listen to Bowie.
0: He's <laughs> <laughs> So, uh Nadami, thank you. Uh, very timely with Valen- on the precipice of Valentine's Day. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you, Captain Reza, uh, the birthday boy, Groovy Shia. We'll see you all in a few minutes or in about an hour from now, I should say, with Chef Haas. So, uh, stick around. Let's get to our feature guest for the day. You know, in the context of human rights, minority rights, and women's rights in contemporary Iran, after decades of stilted progress, the question may be asked, Are human rights and any semblance of gender equality even attainable at all under this Islamic Republic, or is the only hope to be found in complete overthrow of the regime? And what can we learn from the history of activism in Iran and in the diaspora over the last century to instruct us on how change may come and who is currently at the forefront of that mission? Well, our feature guest today is a professor and the founding director of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at California State University Northridge. She is also the former chair of the Gender and Women's Studies Department there. Professor Nayere Tohidi earned her BSc from the University of Tehran in Psychology and Sociology and her MA and PhD from the University of Illinois. She is the recipient of several awards, including postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard University, the Hoover Institute of Stanford and the Ketty Balzan Fellowship at the Center for Near Eastern Studies at UCLA. She continues to be affiliated with the UCLA Program of Iranian Studies and the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies, where she has been coordinating the bilingual lecture series on Iran since 2003. Her publications include editorship and authorship of Globalization, Gender and Religion, The Politics of Women's Rights in Catholic and Muslim Contexts. Women in Muslim Societies, Diversity Within Unity, and Feminism, Democracy, and Islamism in Iran. And right now, Professor Nayere Tohidi joins me from Los Angeles today. Hello.
4: Hello, Mr. Gian Gomeshi. I'm pleased to be with you today.
0: I'm very happy to get to talk to you, too. Thank you for uh, doing this. You know, on this week marking the 42nd anniversary of the revolution in Iran, I, I want to ask you questions today, as I said, about the revolution, the history of activism in Iran and in the diaspora over the last century, how we create change. And I have to say, you're an interesting person to put this to in a sea of polarized views, because you're not only an academic expert in this field, but as I understand it, someone who rejects rigidity in thinking and any specific ideological box. Would that be? Right.
4: I have done a lot of feminist activism and feminist studies, uh, but I don't want even to limit myself in in any kind of ism because for me traveling through different countries uh, but also experiencing activism within the framework of different ideologies have made me rather evasive (laughs) or kind of pessimist about upholding any dogma any uh, limiting ideological framework.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that, uh, your thoughts around rigidity of thinking in our community. Let me get to our main question for today. You know, uh, we did this special called The Case for Nasreen three months ago on Rook. That would be Mm -hmm. Nasreen Sotodeh, the brave and near iconic lawyer and human rights campaigner in Iran who's been Mm -hmm. jailed simply for defending the rights of women and minorities in Iran. And, And the response we received was quite instructive, if a little shocking, I would even say. I mean, there were many, of course, who are in awe of the stamina and the dignity of Nasrin Sotudeh, continuing to fight for what she believes in, and who were saddened by the way she's been suppressed by the Iranian government, jailed. But then there were others that said, yeah, she's an impressive woman, but she's wasting her time as there is no path forward for finding progress around human rights and women's rights under this current regime. And so it invites the ultimate question that I want to pose to you throughout this interview, which is how much does human rights and the ultimate equality, liberation, and empowerment of Iranians, and in particular Iranian women, depend on secularism, or to, or to maybe to put it more bluntly, the end of this current regime?
4: Um, simple answer is a lot. It, it is uh, very much dependent on that. But, you know, from our experience under the Shah's regime, we learned that you can't wait to fight for or even get some changes toward your goals in terms of improvement of women's status, women's rights, or human rights, generally speaking, workers' rights the rights of the child, children, uh, minorities, be it ethnic minorities, religious minorities, sexual minorities. You can't wait for a regime collapse and regime change uh, and then raise these issues and then fight for these issues. Uh, It was a big mistake for some of activists during our time who were rather romantic about, you know, their goals, about the idea of change. Mm. Change happens, it takes time, change happens incrementally, change happens uh, gradually, it doesn't happen overnight, and in order this change become really profound and meaningful and bring about profound changes, not only change from a... A dictator in uh, with a crown to a dictator with a turban, because that is what has happened in Iran. We had di- we were fighting dictatorship, but a modern dictatorship mm-hmm. who at least didn't intervene in our private life, in our daily civil rights. Right? I mean, I could wear whatever I wished, yeah. uh, uh, of course, according to the norm of the society. And because society itself was rather uh, polarized and dual under, especially in by late 1970s. A, a group of minority uh, were very uh, well off and westernized, modernized, and uh, you could see women in mini in uh, very, you know, um, uh, you could see, X-rated films in cinemas and all that, but at the same time, there were the majority of people in Iran were still very traditional Mm -hmm. and conservative, Mm -hmm. so the culture generally was conservative, and there was a backlash, which you know, more especially by the intervention of the ulama, that's the clerics, mullahs. uh, They they mobilized, they they appealed to this resentment among many who didn't like some of the things that the modernizing Shah did so rapidly, and also the repressive nature of that dictatorship that didn't Let the middle class, the new middle class, the new elite, uh, highly educated elite, to participate in the process of governing and decision making. All that led to the revolution, which is needs another hour of talking. Of course, yeah. So I don't want to get into that, but I'm going to say that that at that time, mainly the repression was at political level. Not at individual like civil rights uh, or what you eat, what you uh, believe in uh, as a person, but but we got a much worse regime replacing the Shah's regime, which is not only dictatorial as much, but also very uh, ideological and uh, totalitarian. It's a kind of a t- especially in the beginning, there were semi-fascistic elements to it that everybody had to become like they were after a uniform uh, womanhood, a uniform manhood and everybody had to adhere their definition of religion and really it was it was a theocracy. Uh, it, but it has evolved it's hard to just call the Iranian regime today a theocratic regime even though it is at the core it is still theocratic right, but right. it has it had to change people have forced the regime to change in some ways so we we learned after, uh, what we got by fighting the regime and thinking that we are going to call for the end of the Shah, no matter what, and then we were going to think what is right, going to replace right, it, right. right? So that was the biggest mistake. Well, but I, today- I love, I,
0: I love the. I, boy, I'm, i do not love. But I'm, I'm captivated by the idea of you can't just wait for the change, because it is germane to the current moment, in the sense that. Um, even if the Islamic Republic goes away tomorrow, um, what is next? What kind of assurance is there that something as destructive or damaging will not replace the current regime when it comes to human rights and gender issues, right?
4: Right, right. Especially if you don't build up the discourse, but the consciousness. You see, during the Shah, we really did not have the opportunity for free media for for because of globalization the new technology we have today we have so much access to people to educate people i mean people are educating themselves not that necessarily there is a vanguard here during the shah the the gorillas the the uh, Mujahideen, the Fedayeen, the Tudor Party, the Nationalists—they call themselves like vanguard of the society, trying to educate people through the shabnam, uh, meaning that things that they would write uh, at night and distribute at night, uh, avoiding the sabaks' attention. Uh, everything clandestine, but uh, very lim- limited uh, chance to for uh, diversity of opinions, for discussion, for debates, unfortunately. And that was Shah's mistakes too, because if if the Shah had allowed open... Discussion: People would have known Khomeini better, right? But if but they but
0: had- hang on a second. I mean, I, I want to. I'm going to actually go back to uh, the Shah and, I, and even before that, because I want to ask you about the the roots of activism within, over the last century, uh, and particularly activist women in, in in the Iranian context. But if we look in the current moment, because I just want to mm-hmm. stick with this idea that you say you can't okay. wait. You can't wait for the change. So, so that suggests you have to do it in in incremental steps, while 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 you're waiting for the big. But how do we measure any progress? As you know, many people would argue that the small changes are the very the paradoxes. Is is those are the things that are going to allow the regime to just last longer. In other words, how how are we to assess and treat small victories? around human rights or women's rights, say say women okay. being allowed into football stadiums during professional right. men's games, should we celebrate these steps or are these just ways for a repressive government to mollify the people and keep dissent at bay?
4: I understand your question and appreciate that. But listen, human rights used to be seen as luxury under the Shah Too, They were saying, why are you wasting your time? this regime is not gonna observe human rights. So most people did not talk about human rights. Most activists were, were underground. But we didn't learn about democracy that way. We didn't learn about importance of human rights. That's why we got a regime without thinking that, is a cleric like Khomeini going to observe democracy and human rights? Today, we have the chance. We have access to the media. We have access to social media. We have the chance to educate ourselves, understand the importance of democracy and what democracy means, what human rights means. So some people are doing that. Nobody is saying that this is the only thing you need to do. If there are people who think the best way is to bring down this regime, they can go ahead and bring down the regime. Nobody is preventing them. Nassim Tutude is not telling them that, stop we don't want to change this regime. Mm. nasrin herself was part of 20 people, or actually it was, I think, 15 people who called for national referendum for the change of the whole constitution. Right. That was a radical move. So she is, if you ask her, If I, I know her very well. She's a you know, I have been in contact with her and with uh, Nargis Mohammadi and many, several of these uh, women activists and male activists who are working around human rights issues because another e- another reason why human rights is important and should be an important discourse in Iran is that many ideologies that we have had are so polarizing, so divisive. Right, right. Look. Look how divided the iranian opposition is you, right. i'm sure you know better than oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and why because everybody has their own agenda their own preferred ideas and preferred visions and preferred um, ideological framework but what brings all these forces of opposition together is the framework of human rights that is the one that everybody would accept. Nobody. But, but, would, but again, would I'm I'm that. trying
0: to drill down into. I mean, I, I don't want to chase our tail on this. And I, and but I, no, I, no, I but I just if I just one more time, I go because I'm trying to get my head around it. If democracy, say, um, is not possible. If if gender equity, let's say, is not possible under a the a, a current style conservative Islamist clerical state, of, whatever you want to call it, neo theocracy, post theocracy, mm-hmm. uh, which has pursued uh, sex segregation, extreme forms of legal and practical discrimination against women, if that's not possible, then what if, what is? What is the value of uh, you know um, scratching away to try and get some uh, some some little rewards uh, if if it's if you're not going to be able to win the prize? Uh, I guess that's at the heart of it. I'm I I am uh, in awe of Nasreen today I'm not suggesting that anybody's doing anything uh, that isn't uh, awesome in terms of wanting to create change or 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 do their part. But what is the value of it if we agree that it can't happen? under this current context
4: the value is that even these little rewards make us hopeful make us move on make us keep on fighting listen I don't agree that we haven't uh, had any results if you want to be maximalist, yes we haven't achieved change of the regime But if you believe that there can be little by little changes, it it has happened. I'm not saying that I'm opposing or Nasrin or hair type are opposing those who are trying to bring about profound, uh, you know, as you said, like the big prize, right? right, right? They can go ahead and do it, but Nasrin is a lawyer. And she has decided to advocate her life to defending human rights and defending people who are in prison, because somebody needs to do that. Not everybody can be, like during the Shah, you know what they were telling me when I was saying that, oh, the Shah is doing good things by like family reform or by uh, hiring more women in jobs and we are have now more opportunities and so forth. They would tell me, those leftist friends of mine would tell me, you're wasting your time. These are tricks, these are capitalistic tricks mm. to, uh, to make Shah more appealing to people like you. Don't get fooled by those reforms. We need to change this whole regime and i was so naive to accept that but today i won't accept that i won't wait until the big change comes uh-huh. because i know that people need to learn the importance of these uh, little by little changes look look at the way women were covered in the beginning of the islamic state in iran and look the way they are covered today uh-huh. yeah they, they were they had to be covered completely by this black chador only their face and hands could be shown and it could be and the colors you can, you could use were only dark blue dark brown and uh, gray or uh, black but women little by little changed the color of the dressing they, they, they have fashionized everything look how fashion oriented women in but Iran, you know obviously. but you know
0: how people would respond to that they and would they, say they, they would been. they would say it's it's only been a year and a half since Aubon where they slaughtered a hundred a thousand five hundred 1, people in the streets of for course. exercising so, their voice you know or so whatever. what
4: do you want what do you want women to do can all women become like now a guerrilla fighter what do you right. want them to do some i mean you can't expect everybody to do maximal and maximum fight.
0: It's interesting that you should mention women, because at the same time as I'm posing that overreaching question, which I realize there's there's no easy answer to, so I, I, I'm putting you in a box and I, forgive me for that. The refrain <laughs> from many historians and political scientists, like for example, Abbas Milani, who said this on our program not too long ago, has been that the best prospect for change for Iranian society in general is in the hands of women. And female activists are the ones who have been leading the way in terms of trying to affect change in recent decades. Do you agree?
4: I agree, and the reason is that this regime is so obsessed with control of women, especially women's body. Women's body has become the battleground for different forces of uh, you know different ideologies in Iran. Like when women, I mean today the the emblem or the identity marker or marker of power for the regime, the Islamist uh, state, was covering a woman's body. Today from that, there is only one scarf left. Uh, But that's why they are obsessed at least to keep that, to show that they are still in control, they are still in power. But women have been very... Uh, creative in the way that they have been fighting this regime. One step ahead, two step behind. Again, two step ahead, one step behind. They have been cleverly, as, as kind of the Shahzad, uh, you know, uh, metaphor mm-hmm. that uh, try to talk uh, this uh, uh, king uh, away from killing her but because she understood how obsessed and how psychologically <laughs> uh, pathologic he was. Uh, this is a pathology in a way for for these mollas to be so obsessed with women's hair, women's body covering mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So women have, in, like using psychology, have uh, like gradually insensit- uh, insensitized them toward uh, showing a little bit more color, more fashion, more body. But that's not the primary issue for women, right? I mean, of course, it, it symbolizes a lot of things, what you wear and the freedom of uh, dress. And uh, of course, it's very, very important. But women also are achieving in, in uh, education. Look how much they have achieved and obtained. Even they surpass men in universities. Over 60% of the students in universities are women. Women are not better educated than men. But of course, they, have, they don't have the same opportunities for employment. The employment rate is very low in Iran. In other words, Iran's women's status is, ver- is very paradoxical. On mm-hmm. the one hand, they are very conscious, very active, very present in society despite the idea of the regime that wanted to seclude them and uh, have even early retirement for working women and all that but women have kept their presence and this presence has its own power they have imposed themselves on the on this anti-woman and kind of misogynist regime so they have gained a lot if you compare what they what the how where they are today level of their demands. Look how outspoken they are, how um, fearless they are. They are uh, challenging the clerics, the police on a daily basis. Many women get arrested because of not wearing the proper dress. Many of them are just fighting back, spoke speaking out and speaking back to the police and so forth. That's why they are so scared of women. And that's why women have become primary agents of change. But the change is doesn't come in one form. I mean, cultural change is as important, right?
0: But this is a this is a perfect segue because I want to. You, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you come from, and I want to ask you a little bit about how we got here, because you've said that Iran's engagement in gender politics and women's activism is not a new phenomenon. It's it's true that we talk about it now, but it's rather a culmination of women's quiet involvement, you've called it, in Iranian politics over the last century. Can you can you describe that quiet involvement uh, as you've called it in that period before the 60s and 70s uh, when women's liberation became easier to identify in Iran? What did quiet involvement in, in, entail?
4: Well, they, people think that uh, all of a sudden, the Shah. Let's start from Reza Shah. Reza Shah all of a sudden decided to uh, demand compulsory unveiling of women. Yes. Yeah. But there were women even then. Women's associations that among their demands included freedom of choice for hijab for for. Uh, by hijab, I mean the cover, right? The, the veil. Islamic yeah, yeah. cover, yeah. The veil. So that was part of women's demand demands. Um, but then Reza Shah, when he traveled to Turkey, and also the changes that he saw in Turkey, and also a lot of news coming from the Soviet Union at that time, and how women in the Caucasus, in Muslim republics, were becoming unveiled. Uh, so there was this influence of the neighboring countries for Reza Shah, especially Turkey, was a turning point. He saw that, okay, if you can do it in Turkey and in uh, Islamic, uh, very traditional societies of Tajikistan, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, in the northern uh, part of you know the neighboring of Iran, why can't we do it in Iran? So he used, actually, uh, he was inspired by Ataturk, but he used the, the method of the Soviets, the Bolsheviks rather than Ataturk, it made it compulsory. Right. So, that, but that's another issue. What, I mean, he, it, his intention was good, but his method was very um, heavy-handed and autocratic and, to, I mean, authoritarian. Uh, the same way that our modernization, in Iran has been very, uh, you know, top-down and authoritarian, which which is part of the problem. Can I just part, can part I just of
0: of ask you about that? Be- uh, what you're getting out there, because uh, if I understand correctly, it's complex because. When, when in nineteen thirty six, he Reza Shah decrees the 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 abolishment of the veil, this is seen as progress for those who believe in secular democracies. That, but but it's complex because it's also leaving no room for women to choose if they want to wear the veil, and and so (laughs) uh, not only
4: that, not only that, but also it makes it like as a as an off. It makes women depend on the state; it takes away the agency of women. It becomes like a gift from the these male autocrats, rather than women gaining it by their own organization, their own efforts. And uh, because the best way that the Reza Shah could do this was to say that, say, from now on, women have the right to wear hijab or not to wear it. And... Uh, and have the police and gendarmerie rather than taking up women's hijab from their head, helping them, protecting right. them from the attacks of others. That was the way to go for it. So anyway, I'm saying that we are, unfortunately our modernization has been always uh, contradictory and with problems. Despotism always uh, intervened in the process. But during the, the second Pahlavi, Muhammad al Shah, he understood uh, the problem with that uh, method, and he left women to decide what to wear, which was a good decision to make. And the reform about family, like uh, the family protection law, again, people think that that was the gift from the Shah. No, many women fought for it, not not going to the streets because that wasn't possible, but they created associations, Mm. lobby groups, they kept writing letters, they kept, pushing. Uh, and then even the women's organization that the Shah, uh, uh, you know, allowed and created and actually then by that, when uh, they kind of uh, asked every women's organization to join the this government-supported organization, the, the Sazman-e-Zanone Iran, the Women's Organization of Iran. Uh, it has some advantages because it has, you no, know, a budget support of the state. But the disadvantage was that again, it it didn't give women the agency, right. The, right. and it you had to work closely with the regime, with the Shah. And for some women, especially after the coup, the 1953 coup d'état, some women didn't want to collaborate with the government anymore. So it it was. There was, again, some contradiction and problem here. It was really complex. But the what I'm trying to say here is that people don't realize that women have kept fighting, yeah. either within the women's organization, women like Hales Svandiori, like Mahnaz uh, Afghami, like the women senators or women deputies in majlis were fighting for the reform in family law. Uh, because the problem was that, even though this, the government was secular, and many of the institutions, the state institutions became secular under Reza Shah and under Mohammad Reza Shah, the family law, the personal status law remained under Sharia, under, I mean, this is during Pahlavi era. They never secularized family law. Why? Because they made a deal with the clergy that okay, we we are not going to touch your power base. You are going to still have control over women and family and personal status. We are, but we are in the public life, in the like employment. In they, they had uh, secular.
0: Let me in, come. In, let me come yeah. to that. I just want to point at something that would have been is a marker we can look at to a significant change that happened by the early 1960s with your point taken that it was the quiet involvement of Iranian women that that helped to induce to to bring about this change under Mohammad Reza Shah but in 1963 under the Shah Iranian women mm-hmm. achieved the right to vote and be elected to parliament right. and and in the subsequent
2: <laughs> well and <laughs> in the subsequent
0: <laughs> election. election four women were voted into parliament two to the senate I mean, when I actually went and looked through this historically, it bears mentioning that this is during a period when women in, say, Switzerland didn't have the right to vote yet. So um, it is significant. I mean, it seems draconianly, you know, backward now, but, but it is a significant um, uh, note, you know, to put an asterisk next to. How pivotal was that moment?
4: it was very significant and you know that one of the reasons why Khomeini opposed that whole uh, so-called white revolution was especially because of giving the rights to women to be elected and to also elect and uh, so it was very significant it was empowering Uh, but unfortunately due to lack of democracy lack of uh, different parties it remained very limited to to kind of upper class uh, elite women, not it wasn't a, it didn't ha- have impact massively on wider society. And by the way, Iran was not the first Muslim majority country to give the right to women to vote, it was actually the eighth one. I have, there were several other countries, mm. including Turkey, Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt. Who were far ahead of Iran in terms of uh, the right to, uh, to vote and other uh, issues as well. Uh, so, but but Iran was was progressing, no doubt about that, and it was rather Shah was rather convinced in gradually. To go for these reforms, he was very reluctant in the beginning. This the same with Reza Shah. Reza Shah he himself had three wives. Why should you? Why should he? Why should he care about reforming women? You know, family law. But regardless, we had, as I said, we had modern uh, modernizers. We had uh, who were uh, at least partially secular. But what we ended up with was a a government that has, the first victim of it was women, uh, that is Islamic government.
0: And but, but before we got to the Islamic uh, government, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to turn it around and throw, throw this at you. This is, this period of the 60s and 70s is also a period where we begin to see an increase in fundamentalist opposition to the new liberties, right? Um, yes. And there's been an argument made that you know, um, in contrast to what the, what we've just been talking about, that in fact it was too much, too fast. The white revolution in the sixties and seventies, and it and it therefore created this reflexive backlash from the clergy that grew in power, and from fundamentalists and hardliners. Do mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Uh,
4: partially, uh, yes. It was too fast, and whenever uh, something happens, a change. Uh, in culture especially material culture it creates a uh, cultural lag you know because we especially most part of our modernization was through infusion company which was rather imported right uh, exported from the west to iran rather than being indigenous starting from bottom up uh, or starting from right, the right. Uh, the uh, you know, like I remember people were saying that we have cars now, but we don't know how to drive them. That's why traffic was so awful. <laughs> people would not uh, observe the rules of their traffic because people have, had not learned how to respect laws because okay. laws were not important in Iran. That's, that, that, again, brings me to the importance of democracy. Democracy is a culture. You have to learn it. And it starts from the family, if in the family, if a family is patriarchal and father is the only one who decides and mother has no power and children should obey this dictator, dictatorial father. And then society is like family writ large that you have the father of the, I mean, fathers who is the, the biggest dictator and you have to just follow then you don't learn how to respect laws and rules, because the, the shahs themselves did not observe the constitution. They did not go by the constitution. They ruled as as you know, as autocrats rather than just being uh, king, hmm. uh, like the constitutional monarch. They they were not constitutional. They did not observe constitution. So the whole society uh, had was deprived of a democratic culture. There was no chance to culturize people, to socialize them in democracy. We had this fundamentalist reactionary backlash, but we could have fought it if there were a space for debate, for education, for free press. But this comes back to your
0: point that you have to you have to bring people you have to wean people on on democracy before you even have the democracy or they won't know what to do with it or how to how to manage right. it or or how to get it if when if the opportunity comes that's yeah. it's fascinating. You know, it, it, as we get up closer to the revolution, I mean, this lead up to the revolution of 79 is always fascinating to me on so many levels. You were there. We have this strange moment when we're talking about women where scores of liberal women did support Khomeini. And, and many of them expected that progress would continue after the revolution. I, I, like, obviously, it's hard to retroactively assign blame when so many intellectuals and progressives believed in the revolution at first, But in hindsight, Nayara, why would women's rights activists believe that an Islamic republic would give women equality, include removing all the existing obstacles for participation of women in affairs of the state?
4: They did not. You see, the the anti-Shah movement began by secular uh, men and women, uh, by writers, by poets, in, the, in that famous ten days of poetry reading, Chapoye Sherhani in the Goethe uh, Institute. There, by the... people welcomed the change of policy of the US government when President Carter tried to emphasize human rights. Mm. They said, ah, oh, so maybe we have now an opportunity to talk about democracy, to talk about our ideas and criticize the government, the, the repression and call for building of parties and so forth. Uh, so it was the be- in the beginning, even the, the clerics were very cynical about Carter and the whole notions of uh, human rights. They came late, they just kind of, you know, when they saw that well, there are looks like there are uh, real changes are happening, and Shah is giving some space. So they jumped onto the onto the wagon of the uh, of the revolution. Besides, many people of even these intellectuals, secular intellectuals, most of them leftists, and some of them nationalists, uh, they were not asking for. Revolution or downfall of the Shah. They were asking for reforms. Uh, I remember one of their slogans wa- was um, "Islahat ari diktatorina," reform, yes to reforms, no to dictatorship. So they were not calling for downfall of the Shah or revolution in the beginning. Even someone like Mehdi Bazargan, who was uh, the first prime minister, yeah. whose uh, whose reign did not last more than one year? He resigned because of the hostage taking and all that. He was a very moderate, uh, rather rather liberal uh, Islamic. Uh, I wouldn't even call him Islamist because he didn't believe in uh, theocratic system. Uh, Khomeini and his type came and deceived people, or or who knows. I don't think he, he honest he was honest but how deliberate his deception was who knows i people cannot read his mind but he's the one who has written that book uh, Hukumate hukumat islami mm-hmm. who never was read by people because it was not allowed so many intellectuals even hadn't read it i remember professor Kedi here was the one who was saying Look at this book. People should know about this book. Well, let me, let me just this explain is-
0: that to uh, any non-Iranians or non-Farsi speakers. There's, there's a famous saying from Ayatollah Khomeini uh, when, when he was in Paris. This is on the precipice of the revolution, uh, aside from the book, where he said, mm-hmm. women will all have a role in the society, but within an Islamic framework. Right. And I always wonder if if the activists at the time again it's hard to blame anybody in retrospect but but if if this was properly questioned as to what an Islamic framework would mean.
4: Right. It wasn't. It wasn't. And it, because uh, it was almost too late by then that when Khomeini says that when Khomeini went to Paris to Paris and started uh, propagating from there by his cassettes uh, taped uh, you know, cassette tapes, he had already become the very important figure in the movement. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it was... Uh, so people had to... I mean, people didn't know him well. We just started learning from him. And the, this uh, people like Yazdi and Qudsadeh and Bani Sader were surrounding him. and when the media were interviewing Khomeini, they were responding. They were even Excellent. translating the way that appeared very democratic, right. you know? So we were misled. In many ways, people were misled. But a few women who got the chance to interview Khomeini themselves, some some journalists, uh, like uh, that famous journalist who also interviewed the Shah,
0: Fulaci. Whom
4: Khomeini almost threw out of his room. Um, you see, women did not join the street demonstrations to have a, an Islamic Republic. They didn't. That's why they were the first force. The first ever demonstration were done by women against Khomeini's new uh, declarations of like forced hijab, mm-hmm. Uh, removing women judges from uh, their positions and also uh, kind of uh, putting aside the family protection law. So women were the first groups. But what happened? Many leftists, secular, even secular leftists, secular nationalists, as well as religious nationalists, they didn't support women. They said, oh, the veil is just a minor issue. And of course, another trick was that initially, Ayatollah Talibani, who was more relatively more progressive, he he said that no, hijab is not going to become compulsory. Just go home to these women who were uh, on the streets for almost a week. Uh, Will. I'm going to talk with the Imam uh, Khomeini and uh, things are going to change. No, don't be scared. So women lost the momentum. They shouldn't have believed. Maybe maybe Taliban... But was what also happened?
0: Hate. What happened to the... I mean what happens to this movement that you've been so eloquently talking about that starts way back to the Reza Shah mm-hmm. that uh, I, I mean I'm almost I, I don't want to be insensitive asking this question because I've sat here over the last few months interviewing people like Sharonoush Parsipur or Marengu Sakar mm-hmm. who were what happened right. they were thrown in jail is what happened that's part of what happened or, or Homo Shar yeah. who had to you know escape and leave Or but, but you know as you say the veil gets officially reintroduced in 1979, in fact, March 8th, 1979, which is Women's Day, and there are well, marches and protests against mandatory mailing. The, what sorry. happened to that movement?
4: Okay. Because they, prom- at, at least some of these state elements, more secular elements, promised that no, it's not going to become compulsory, it's not going to become part of the law. It took two years for the government to legalize a compulsory veiling. it did they didn't do it at once they started and then they kind of retreated because they saw how women uh opposing it vigorously but when the when women lost the momentum gradually they began to like from started in the workplace different workplaces and gradually put it in the law but what was happening in between was taking away, uh, like hostage taking, occupying the embassy. The whole atmosphere became again anti-American, anti. This anti-imperialism has been one of the um, issues that has really sacrificed women's rights in the expense of being anti-imperialist. Everybody kept saying look, this is not the time to fight for the veil. The veil is so secondary for, um, for imperialism who's gonna bring the Shah back. We should get make sure that the Shah is not coming back. That was one kind of way to distract women. The second, the most important one was the start of the war with Iraq. Under almost every experience of wars, in different countries that I have studied, women's issues become relegated to the future Hmm. and marginalized, and women have to become quiet because they are going to appear as betraying the unity of the society against this outside enemy, right?
0: You're undermining the team all of a sudden, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So women had to be quiet that those were those eight years of war, which was the hardest for women, not that women were fighting necessarily, but because that was the time that the regime was consolidating this anti-women project and anti-women's rights policies everywhere. They, They used that occasion to make the the law of qisas, retribution, which is very harsh set of laws based on very old tribal sharia-based laws, Uh, eye for an eye, you know, and those things that were, that I, let me just give you an example, that the testicle of a man worth as much as the whole Body of a woman. Oh if you know, if you cut the testicle right. of a man, you have to pay the blood money, the retribution, and the price is as much as if you kill a woman. I mean, that is the type of the yes. law, right. which is so sexist, so violent, so backward. That goes back fourteen hundred years ago uh, of a tribal society. So the the, this, the, the hardliners. Took the upper hand first of all. Look, people like Bazargan were marginalized. Let alone women, right? Of course, of course. She fought yeah. for Islamic Revolution? Right. They were all. So all the reformers, all the moderates were marginalized. The yeah. hardliners yeah. had the day, and ruling the and uh, you know running the show, and they. By, that's why Khomeini said the war is a blessing, jang. Nay, and and the war was a blessing, and I don't think the war was. I mean, people only blame Saddam Hussein and Iraqi forces for the start of this war, but I blame the Iranian regime as much. You because, mean it was a
0: blessing because it was it allowed the Islamic formalists to really co-opt exactly, uh, to finally the co-opt the, revolution. the yeah.
4: power, yeah. silence people to, to make people silent, to repress very easily. We are fighting. We are fighting the enemy, right? I mean, that's why war worked, uh, the, that eight-year war worked very much against women and and completely uh, stopped not only women's uh, movement and activism, but also the ethnic groups, religious minorities, workers, r- uh, writers, journalists. Everybody had to serve the purpose of war, this divine you know mission
0: (laughs) it's so you know i I wish i could i wish i had a hundred hours with you because each of the because it's so insightful and each one of these periods each one of these moments requires uh, the whole interview but but let me zoom ahead again now and say you know it is obvious it would uh, no one could make the case that there was anything close to um a, you know a semblance of women's rights through the first decade or two of, of after the revolution uh, there is something you called this paradoxical earlier in this interview and there is something that's really complicated and confusing that's happening around the plight of women in Iran right now because to restate almost exactly what you said earlier in this interview there is obvious ways in which there's horrible disparity. The participation in the the labor force is only 17%. Severely underrepresented in senior public positions. And
4: 17, by the way, is the most optimistic estimate. Right,
0: right. Underrepresented in private sector as managers, all of that. And yet then you have women comprising over 50% of university graduates.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: there's there's this confusing and paradoxical data. How how do we make sense of that in present day Iran?
4: Exactly. Right. In one of my long uh, articles which is a chapter of a textbook, I have tried to explain all that. Not only those data that you mentioned are important, but there's one and one another index which is internationally as an index of achievement and uh, you know uh, better status for women and that is the rate of fertility the birth rate women have in iran have achieved to reduce the birth rate from 6 for a woman on average to 2 and this is this is very important because without if you are busy keeping uh, you know, your t- your time is consumed with raising babies and right, giving right. birth, you can't work outside home. Sure. You can't right. have higher education and so forth. So we know that there is h- positive correlation between a low fertility rate and a higher rate of employment and higher rate of education, higher rate of political participation, higher rate of cultural expression and cultural productions for women and all that. So, and the, and Kham, we know that Khamenei, the, the supreme leader, so to speak, is trying to encourage women and even force, in some uh, cases, women to become more pregnant, give more birth, and he's not succeeding. That itself is kind of a way to fight that definition of womanhood that the regime wants to to accomplish. Women say, we want to have our own lives too. We can't afford to have more than two children because women now have have become more conscious about themselves as individuals, as people who have to enjoy their life, have to have freedom of time for leisure, for education, for arts. Look, many of the best books and bestsellers are written by women. Literature book, poetry, uh, stories, novels, uh, the, uh, the books, the films. Look how women have become present and many films are addressing women's issues, even the ones who are, which are made by men, uh, directors or male filmmakers so we there are that's why it's paradoxical many yeah. women have learned to play some musical instrument and, and despite, it's confusing because it,
0: if a non-iranian friend of mine or somebody or not not a friend of mine says uh uh, oh you know that backward place Iran and you know, you know where women are treated like you know you, you feel defensive not because you want to you know defend the regime but because um because you know that there's this like um whole new cohort of brilliant exactly. women in Iran who are yeah. independent who are smart but but how do we frame that within this oppressive kind of uh, context okay. right?
4: because the regime can do only as much it's the regime in a country in a globalized context is only one force, very big force, of course, especially its brutal force is always there. But people also have learned, especially again, thanks to this new uh, communication technology, to the satellite TV, to the whole processes of globalization, the currency of human rights, the currency of women's rights discourses. These are important, women are learning from this. They cannot prevent people from learning this because of the social media, because of the Telegram, the Facebook, the Twitter. You know, uh, all these are helping women to assert themselves all the time, to shape their own lives despite the regime. So we don't give the credit when we talk about these achievements by women. We don't give the credit to the regime. It is the product, the byproduct of Iran as a modern country. It's this byproduct of 100 years of changes. There we had a strong, professionalized, educated middle class from the previous regime, right? They are the one like people hum- that you just mentioned, people like Parsipur, uh, um, and many others, these are uh, representative of a middle-class women who have been the mothers of these new generations. The family, the mothers who have trained this new generation of younger women were the ones who were against Islamic Republic. Mm-hmm. And they have indoctrinated, socialized their children differently from the indoctrination that they get at the schools. That's why there is this discrepancy between the state discourse, the state ideology, and the current values that people have. Iran is actually very pro Western when you compare it with many other traditional societies
0: So let me ask you about that young generation then that those young female uh, activists within Iran right now tell, tell, tell me about the significance that you see of say the daughters of the revolution
4: look at the daughters of uh, the the revolutionary what do they call it uh, yes right the girls of the Revolution street. What did they do? They they focused on uh, one of their demands, especially for them, it is very critical. Maybe the older generation kind of submitted to this scarf, you know, to this uh, more modest way of clothing. But this younger woman, as, as the younger generation goes after fashion and appearance is important for them in every culture, right, every country, They want to be themselves. They want to be free what to wear. So look how theatrically, very peacefully, and very creatively they asserted their demand for freedom of hijab, meaning hijab should not be compulsory. Leave alone people who don't want to cover their hair. So that, because that is kind of, it has become a very sensitive issue. Regime is very sensitive to it. So many women think that even though it is a just a civil and civic demand, it is not political. But the regime has made it political, right? Because they think that if you don't wear the, this cover, you are actually disobeying the regime right. you are making a political statement and that is true they are making a political statement but they don't they say no i'm just asking for my primary human rights my civic right to wear what i want to wear so yeah the, the, this younger generation not only against the, the compulsory hijab but also against um the uh, uh many forms of violence against women and against discriminatory laws they had a wonderful campaign which was also repressed af- especially after the green movement uh when they had this you know uh, widespread repression of the movement for democracy they also repressed this uh campaign of the 101 100- million signatures yes to change the discriminatory law so there have been several campaigns campaign for the uh, freedom to enter into a stadiums there have been campaign against the stoning and they were successful they have stopped the stoning so when people say all oh, these human rights campaigns end nowhere and we don't get anything no that's not true like we ha- women have been able to stop stoning that is one not a minor achievement. Right. People right. have been able, women have been able to stop uh, the more backward changes in the family law. So the family law, which is now practiced, is basically the same family law that uh, we had during the Shah's regime. Meaning, the uh, polygamy is restricted, uh, but there are there there are some worse worse elements still there, but they had to retreat back to some of the uh, reforms that were uh, made uh, during the Shah's regime about the family law. And of course, the um, temporary marriage has been encouraged by the regime. It wasn't illegal under the Shah either, but it wasn't encouraged. But now the regime, the whole discourse actually encourages, and also economic situation has made it so hard to start a family that many people now have white marriage. That itself is a taboo-breaking move by the younger generation. That they say, we don't want your your temporary marriage based on Sharia, because we don't believe in, in that. We don't want to bring a state into this relationship we have. We want to have a relationship based on love and compatibility without even registering it because we don't want to make it official yet. We are not ready for that, financially or whatever reason. Sure.
0: Yeah.
4: So we have several forms of marriages now. The the changes that is happening in marriage pattern, in the in the meaning of love, in sexuality patterns. Even homosexuals now have their own movement, although mostly in diaspora because it's not possible inside Iran, of but, but, but there are so much you know, changes in consciousness of these younger generations, and this, and this sense of self-confidence, and this modern sense of individuality, which is very threatening to the regime that believes in this collective identity for people, they are, you know, scared of individuality, right, and individual preferences. They want to homogenize people, but these younger ones say, "No, we we are each one of us are different, and you have to respect our differences."
2: Wow! So these
4: are all signs of resistance. I am, I am optimistic, especially in a medium run or long term, f- about Iran because we are, I mean, by our. Blood and skin have experienced how awful a religious despotism is. Yes. The most awful dictatorship is religious dictatorship and ideological dictatorship, which you know, authoritarian which is which is semi fascism. I mean scientifically maybe you can't call it call this fascism because economically it is not fascistic, but Culturally, it has a lot of elements of a totalitarian fascistic system.
0: But you know, the only thing that or one of the few things after with all of what you've just said that make me less optimistic is the rigidity of thinking. In our in our community and I first of all I have to thank you this is this has been fantastic and I've, I've just I learned from you and I really appreciate you taking the time and 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 um, uh, helping us navigate these waters to really understand uh, put some sure. history uh, history behind where we've gotten to today but I want yeah. to actually
4: thank you very much for your good questions and your uh, your challenges uh, <laughs> you know it is hard to address all these things in one session it of is course. it
0: is it is is uh well if you want to commit to a 10 part uh uh series we can (laughs) you know i want to actually come back to something you said at the beginning though and and it dovetails with what i just said about the um the rigidity because you 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 said you really and i've heard you say this before that you really these days one thing you've learned is to try to steer away from rigid opinion ideologies Mm -hmm. fanaticisms and yet and yet as you know the Iranian community tends to be quite rigid, quite lacking in nuance when asserting how to deal with the problem of contemporary Iran. How do we inject nuance or any kind of perspective balance into our conversations?
4: Very good question and very uh, important issue. By Iranian community, I suppose you mean mostly diaspora, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, Because... I think inside Iran, you may get a different uh, perception about the level of rigidity. People are more pragmatic inside Iran. That is my sense of understanding. Even feminism, there are different schools of feminism. Of course, there are ideological ones who are like Marxist feminists or socialist feminists, which are less rigid than marxist feminists and or some who are also kind of muslim feminists uh, who are uh, they they still adhere to the islamic uh, principles but at the same time they want equality uh, there are muslim male intellectuals who are who call themselves mainly um, Mashabi, meaning that i am more uh, like first a nationalist Uh, But I'm also a religious person, so I can uh, integrate my religious beliefs into my nationalism and Mm. go for a secular government. Okay. So there are, I mean, I want to draw your attention to also this kind of eclectic views and forces in Iran who are becoming more pragmatic and have become more pragmatic. If you wanted me, as I have written in my uh, writings, how you, what is, what is, one of the main characteristics of Iranian feminism, I would say pragmatism.
2: You know,
0: are- the, 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 it's interesting because I wonder if that's a pattern, you would know this better than me as a a professor of these studies but uh, if that's a pattern that is reflected in, in diasporas in general because it reminds me of israel and how um mm-hmm. people in israel t- tend to be a lot more open to um different ideas and and there's a lot of uh, he- healthy debate that happens whereas right. in the diaspora the israeli diaspora there are very yes. rigid opinions and yes. it seems similar like we've become that as well
4: right right and similar to cuban Diaspora, the Cuban diaspora. For for bef- before they had the more younger generations of Cuban Americans were very rigid, uh, but uh, I understand the more uh, the younger generations who who have the chance to travel back to Cuba, they understand the nuances. They understand what what works for change and what doesn't work. So. Um, that's why I think, but also, in more recent years, thanks to, I shouldn't say tanks because I don't like uh, tanks means positive due to uh, the influence of this populist right- wing populism in America yeah. the, that that I some people call it Trumpism, people, even American people, many of them have become rigid, right? i mean society has become rather polarized uh, so there are many in Iranian among Iranian diaspora who like trump very much because he, they they thought and expected that trump is going to bring down the Iranian regime and uh, so they are going to be able now to have another good regime and go back to iran and so forth but uh, but of course my and and analysis of many other people was that Trump was not really after Regime change. He was after making a good deal with the Iranian regime. But
0: but in the context of all of this, I mean, look uh, again to 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 restate the question because I led you astray a little bit too asking about Iran. But but the but and talk about the diaspora. But I mean, you're sitting in Los Angeles. You you know all about the the rigidity of the Iranian American uh, community and the different points of view and the factions. Do you have a prescription for how we kind of uh, contend with this? How how we have the conversations we need to have? How we and achieve some nuance how we how we take steps towards unity is that possible
4: it's very difficult it has been very difficult um there has been some coalitions made again mostly based or around the principles of human rights and basic principles of democracy it has been possible, but these coalitions have been very fragile, too, unfortunately, and many of them have been short-lived. Look, even among the monarchists, right, you, you would expect that at least monarchists can be united around the, this uh, their uh, expected future monarch, that is the uh, the uh, Prince Reza Pahlavi, right? Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, but even monarchies are so divided. They can't even come together as monarchies, let alone other uh, groups, uh, like a, a coalition among uh, monarchies and non monarchists and nationalists and leftists. Um, yeah, this division, especially in diaspora, I would say, is, is stronger and more harmful and has made people more rigid i am hopeful given the opportunity in iran the problem is not necessarily being very divided it is because people don't have the opportunity to get together because of the repressive nature of the regime they prevent any assimil any assembly any coalition building Parties are just, if you know, formality. They are called parties. Right. They don't have any power. We don't. You can't have really a democratic culture and democratic system without having different parties, right? I mean, you have to accept first that the diversity of ideas and parties and the parties should compete with each other over their plans and the programs they offer. We don't have that in Iran. Everything is controlled by the uh, by this uh, the Guardian Council, and they screen the candidates, and the coalitions made ad hoc, just like a month before the elections, and elections are for the most part manipulated and rigged, sometimes completely. So the problem in Iran is that there is no political space and opportunity to get united and outside iran is this rigidity and in internal fighting which i don't have any good answer for it but i have seen that whenever there is a strong movement inside iran people get together around that movement we had the largest iranian demonstrations and getting together outside Iran when the Green Movement emerged inside yes, Iran. Yes. Remember, we had the younger Iranians who never participated yes. in demonstrations came. I could see them, so many young Iranians, they were saying that, oh, this is my first time to come to demonstrations. Yes, yes. Because they became hopeful. They became hopeful that change is possible. Now people in Iran are saying, where is my vote? very democratic slogan very non-sectarian non-islamic you know very democratic so it was hopeful so that's why it is more you know um critical to have something inside iran to start and which will mobilize also the gotcha, diaspora, gotcha,
0: and, and potentially bring unity to the uh, right. a semblance of unity to the diaspora. Let, le, let me let me re- revise a final question then, mm-hmm. and or, or add to it by saying if you can't give the answer because it's an impossible <laughs> one to to uh, to the question of how we inject nuance and balance. Do, let me ask you on a very personal level. If you take off your ac- academic hat for a second. Um, do you have any personal rules or or like you guide yourself by when you say you've, you really try to steer away these, these days from rigidity and ideology and fanaticism. How do you practice that?
4: Uh, you see, I, I have been busy with this or hopeful about cross pollination of good ideas of good, um, democratic discourse, human rights discourse, women's yes. rights discourse, yes. to spread that, to make this part of our learning and part of our value system. And and by cross-pollination, I mean diaspora can play really a positive role and constructive role rather than trying to kind of create a leadership from outside Iran to Mobilize people inside Iran, but play a collaborative role it, um, to, uh, to enrich the uh, culture of democracy, to enrich the culture of human rights. And of course, another factor that we didn't talk about is the international uh, factor and international support, which is needed here. But then it is also so politicized, unfortunately. When we get support from international uh, organizations and especially governments, then it immediately the regime has been very skillful to uh, taint that movement right. or group uh, as being uh, another face lactic. of
0: imperialism or something. Right. Yeah.
4: yeah, yeah. Exactly. But then. One of the things that some of us, especially feminists, have been trying to do is to to debunk this false narrative of if you get help from it, or support, if a government, for example, the, let, let me give you a concrete example because this is important. During the green movement, uh, one one of the reasons some people argue that that movement, was so easily suppressed and so many people were killed of course was because the leadership of that movement did not uh, demand or allow uh, President Obama to support that movement clearly and with a strong assertive voice because they even said, oh, we don't want any, we don't want to become associated with any government. But that was a mistake. In this globalized world, we need our own allies. I mean, if the opposition, if the democratic forces, if the feminist forces want to be able to be a force to reckon with, they also need their international allies. The regime in Iran has its own international allies. They are being supported by Russia and China, right? They are supporting their Hezbollah and uh, the uh, the Shia activists in different countries, like in Bahrain, in Yemen, in uh, in Iraq, in Lebanon. They are internationalists when it comes to getting you know they maintaining their own power, but they want us to be isolated from any international networking and international support. But we have to come up with, a, with the right way to do it, with the way that we don't become uh, manipulated by outside forces. We, have, we don't lose our own independence and agency, but we get support the type of support we needed. For example, uh, support with the internet, s- moral support, condemnation, and even targeted sanction, if it is necessary. Mm. Not this all-sided, you know, kind of blind sanction that can hurt people. But targeted sanction, m- kind of a smart sanction, can be uh, more effective. So we need to work on those issues as well. Uh, So that makes us less rigid when it comes to this anti-imperialism thing that is very, has become kind of a cliche and outdated, because even uh, imperialism today has different meaning in a globalized context. Uh, There are many powers, the world has become so polycentric, right? We don't have this one power like the United States that can, which is almighty and can do everything. No. That is just an illusion. The Saudi Arabian uh, power is as important. Iran is itself a kind of a semi-empire itself in the region. And uh, there are many powerful states that are playing important roles. So we need to also kind of refine and revisit our global understanding of politics.
0: There's so much there that um, (laughs) I I cannot end this uh, interview without saying to be continued, please. I hope you'll come back. It has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
4: And
0: I hope that uh, I get to see you and speak to you again soon. Merci. Thank you very much. Nayere Tohidi, Professor and Founding Director of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at California State University, Northridge. Nayere Tohidi joined us from Los Angeles today. Team microphones are back on. So much to consider from that. I really enjoyed that. That was most interesting. Democracy takes time. You have to be ready for democracy have to teach people democracy before you get democracy. I thought that was uh, fascinating. Um Captain Reza, Groovy shy and the fabulous Keon, or um uh who wants to say anything before oh, we I'm get to speechless. Chef Hawks? I ahead. don't
3: know what to say. It was so much to take on and truly Educational, like honestly, like I didn't know what to expect when the interview started, and it's an academic interviews are not necessarily my thing. But oh my god, I was glued to my seat. Mm. It was it was fascinating. It was I fascinating. feel like
1: I just got a ten-session um, <laughs> class on uh, uh, women's issues in Iran, which I would have never had. I and I did not like Reza said. I did not expect this whatsoever. I learned so much. I like one point that i want to draw i had no idea that um that under the pahlavi era the uh, family status fell under sharia law even then at that point when you know like the it's way my parents described great. it women w- had so many rights so many i had no idea even That's then crazy. they were the p- women's bodies were tied to the government in some way yeah. you know it's a, she b- she draws that point as well that um women's bodies are being politicized and used to fight this battle and uh, it's just, it's ins- insanity in this day and age that we still have to struggle. Right. It's crazy.
2: So? Um <laughs> It's really hard to, to put any comments after this interview, mm-hmm. but I uh, I really appreciate all the people who are trying to, be i don't know how can in the middle
0: she's trying to as she said a couple of times we address she's trying to uh, reject rigidity of exactly. thinking on yeah. either, uh, either extreme which is probably very difficult in her field because oh, people yes. are expecting her to come down on one side or another of these issues uh, yeah
2: I'm, i appreciate the, the people especially in this field that they want to avoid being in a particular box. Hmm. I do feel
0: like, um, and I get the feeling, talking to some of these folks, uh, you know, like, uh, like Abbas Milani or uh-huh. Nair Tohidi that I just want to ask them questions for uh hours and hours and be- yes. because she's got s- mm-hmm. so much to, to, to one can learn from you know yeah, and yes. it's uh, it's so valuable I'm uh, grateful that she came on the show and um
1: well, like you said to be continued to i mean be she continued. has so much more to talk about so
0: Maybe she can do the It's All Persian to Us
1: segment. <laughs> probably can. That's, that's a sad reality. <laughs> probably wouldn't have to study. <laughs> she just do it. <laughs> no, it's just it's her background.
0: Um, so uh, to be continued, indeed, speaking of segments, like It's All Persian to Us, you know, it's Thursday. You know who's waiting, just to speak and start salivating now, cause he's the captain of cuisine, he's the culinary colonel, he's the tabrizi talisman, the farsi foodmeister, the Turkish tradesman. It's your chef Hosare, and this is Rook Hospitality. Hi, this is your chef Hossare, and this is Rook Hospitality. Hello Chef Haas. Hello. Hello. How is beautiful San Francisco?
5: It's great and I feel awesome. The awesome, background. so I found my word. Oh, Very witty. awesome!
0: I love it. And, and this, by the way, this is the first time you haven't answered that question by saying I just jogged or ran 15 miles or something. No, so. I
5: was excited to print just a awesome word. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. You are indeed awesome. Uh, what are you teaching us about today?
5: But today we're gonna to talk Iranian style braising meat and the techniques and the why they did that.
0: Okay, Iranian style braising meat. I have to, uh, I have to confess that uh, savvy Roham, uh, who helps, uh, who works with you on this uh, these segments now, has uh, earlier in the show give give us a little heads up of what we're going to be talking about. So, uh, braising meat. I'm going to ask you first, I guess, what bra as far as I remember, braising meat is what is uh, when you slow cook. Meat in oil uh, with vegetables uh, for for over a long period of time is that is that how you define it? What, what tell us what braising meat yeah. is.
5: Two, you mix it two. One is brazen, one is a confit. Cooking it slowly in a, uh, its own fat, that's called comfy. It's delicious. And also brazen means basically you are sealing, you're slowly caramelizing the meat outside, sealing the meat, and then with the broth and vegetables and the spices, you are slowly cooking for a long period of time because meat has muscles. So you want to break... The meat slowly, if those muscles become tender, and that's a slow cook and long period.
0: Okay, so now is there a Iranian style of braising meat, or I- is there a particular Iranian style, and, and if so, how's that
5: done? Absolutely, the Iranian style called gormeh. Gormeh is derived word from Turkish for from gormach. Gormach means, literally means uh, frying, and the reason they used to do that one. As essential that the Kianjan mentioned about all days they didn't have the meat keep it in the refrigerator fresh, fresh, so they had to braise it in the uh, basic oil and fat, cure it, and keep it for the longer, for the winter especially. And that was a particular, and the reason Iranian braising is different because there's no spice or herb. Use for this technique so it can have a multi-usage for any kind of dishes in the future for stews for uh, uh, uh ground uh, everything you want to use you can because there is no flavor added at the braising but the new techniques we use in the kitchen like a french or in my kitchen we braise the meat like lamb champ particularly for dish what we're going to serve so after that we cannot serve that one with another kind
0: mm. can you just re tell me again i because uh, sometimes I don't quite understand these things. So, so uh, wh- why does braising the meat make it last longer?
5: You are curing the meat basically with its own fat and salt added, so you are protecting the meat from getting spoiled mm-hmm. and keeping it in a cool area.
0: Oh, and what what are the are there advantages of braising meat besides the fact that it it it, it, it lasts longer?
5: It's uh, in on the long run it makes it uh, that like again when you braise the meat you're tenderizing the meat slowly cooking so it becomes like a fall apart and also last longer and again it was a method of the uh, old-fashioned even other countries they uh, braise the meat and cure the meat for stay longer and they can use it in the winter when they had a harsh days.
0: So is there a? Um, I guess the the question is in terms of the the Iranian style or what you're teaching us today and what you're going to teach in that video uh, that we'll post at the uh, at our site rookmedia.com and on our Telegram channel. It, 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 do you have a technique the, the way we do this and, uh, that speeds up the cooking time? Because of course the the one sort of flag on the play here is that it's going to take. A long time to do this. That's the that the whole the whole notion is to do it over time, right? So how right. how how what kind of useful technique do you have in terms of speeding it up?
5: Yeah, basically, you take the meat cut it small pieces with bone or without bone doesn't matter, and you are cooking in the hot boiled water. So that's actually the first step you are cooking it with the hot water, boiling, you're taking care of the bacteria might be outside the meat. So basically you are making the meat safe and also about half an hour you cook time. So that's kind of, you don't want to cook all the way you cook it. And after that, you strain the meat.
0: So you, get, you get rid of the calf. You don't want to keep that, right? Exactly, you uh-huh. strain,
5: yeah, exactly. Okay. And then after that, when you strain the meat from the broth, we'll talk about broth later, what they use for that, for it, what they use for it. But for the meat, they take another pot with the animal fat or sometimes they uh, use the the tail of the uh, lamb, or or if you don't like it, you can use regular, like a G for it. And you are caramelizing, and you are uh, giving a little color, but you don't want to overcook it because it crumbles. And then after that, let it cool. And when you put in ceramic or the clay pots, you want to make sure top of it is fat. So that seals the meat from the, uh, protect the meat from the, getting spoiled or bacteria. And you can keep that one in the cool area, which is in the old days. Every household, they have an underground called Ambari or Sardabe. It was particularly made like an old school, homemade, to keep this for the winter. It's
0: like a cellar, right?
5: Yes, they're like yeah. exactly, yeah. like a cellar. Exactly.
0: Okay. Well, uh, so, and what are we going to see exactly on this uh, video?
5: On the video, I am taking the audience step by step how to cook the uh, boiling water and separate it and explaining them how they can braise the, and uh, the, the timing and how they can keep it, especially if you don't need anymore to keep it for winter. But even this meat in the refrigerator can last for as long as you want. As long as you don't touch the, penetrate the top part of the, the fat it stays longer but the moment you touch it then you have to use it like a maximum right, right. 10 week or 10 days
0: can i can i ask you so if, if um if i buy some some meat uh, and um, i i know that i'm not going to have time I, I know i'm not going to eat it right away so i I'm, I'm, I'm buying it for the future um, does it make sense to put that meat in the refrigerator in the freezer now or to braise it and put it in the freezer
5: Great question. Braising is better because you are respecting the flavor, keeping the flavor. But if you put a freezer, anytime you put the meat in the freezer, you lose the quality of the flavors. Ah, it, I won't recommend the freezing the meat, especially like steak, like a lamb shank. So, is so okay. those people who
0: you know you go buy in bulk a bunch of meat from Costco, you it, it, and you put it in the freezer. You, you're you're saying it actually makes sense to braise it first before you do that.
5: Actually, prevent from buying the frozen product unless the lamb shang is okay, hind shang, lamb shang is okay, but when you go to steak, ribeye steak, New York steak, if it's frozen, the flavor is fifty-eight percent is gone. Mm. I won't recommend it, it has to be a fresh one. Yes, exactly. Uh, I will so never freeze again that's it <laughs> that's won. the end of that <laughs> <laughs> you can, like, it's the best way to experiment it like it will have a one fresh piece one frozen defrost mm. it and also you, when you defrost the meat you are jeopardizing the quality and also exposure for the bacteria you might mm. even get sick that's another mm. problem when I mean you that you have to concern when I mean you have a defrost in the No, it's just a, it's just stuff. a
0: convenience thing i mean obviously the meat from the butcher is better but but uh, you know if you if you can't keep running to the butcher you want to buy some meat and put it in the freezer or in the or something but this is very instructive to know that you lose i mean if you lose that much of the taste it really isn't worth it isn't no. it
3: Yeah, and it's fair to say, I suppose, that back then they did it to prevent the meat from spoiling. Now you do it more so to preserve the taste and flavor of it, right? And also
5: they used to do that one in the summer or uh, middle of the fall. Like uh, the whole family household, they used to take, depends on how many people live in, one or two whole animals. They used to butcher it and cook the whole thing. So in the winter, all they have to do when they're cooking, just rather than cooking two, three hours this meat, they had like about warm it up, add it to their ashes, soups or stews or anything they want to use it. So it was a practical, Mm. quick meal, make it with this uh, the the brazen meat.
1: Isn't it funny that this ancient tactic actually is better than the modern way of freezing meat that to That's me crazy. is pretty cool
5: i know <laughs> absolutely well, great point uh, Kianjan. what i want to
3: know chef is that uh, in terms of taste like if i'm cooking stew with fresh meat um in terms of taste would it be different if i were to braise the meat and then cook the, my stew with it or no
5: yes because you have the flavor stays there but in this case you are, uh, I know the juice comes you're cooking for 20-30 minutes at the beginning of the boiling water, but mm. uh, you can use that one, we call that one eshkaneh and oh. you can use it for the uh, family or old days because when they cooked this, uh, they braised this meat it smell was so good, the whole neighborhood could have smelled it, so what they used to do, when they take this broth and add few small pieces of the meat, we braised the meat to it and give, pass it around the neighbors to share the love.
0: Chef Haas, I thank you uh, by, by the way, is it is it more effective to braise meat with Shia's jazz music <laughs> on piano behind you or without? Uh,
5: <laughs> to answer your question, I cannot cook if there's not music <laughs> playing in the background. <laughs> uh, music is basically, I, I cook, but music is the food for my mm. soul. Ah,
0: beautifully said. Chef Haas, thank you. We look forward to seeing your video and uh, look forward to talking again next week, brother.
5: It's always a pleasure to be a great crew out there, Rook. Thanks, bye, Chef. Bye bye. bye. bye.
0: Chef Hasare in San Francisco with Hospitality. So you can see his latest video, in this case, how to braise meat Iranian style, at RookMedia.com. Our website, it'll be there right on the front page there. Or our Telegram channel. It's also available there. Our Telegram channel is Rook Media. All right. Uh, you know, I said I would do this before the end of the show. I want to thank some of the uh, BFFs, some of the folks who've uh, uh, been uh, uh, so kind to become patrons at Rook. Um, and I'm going to do these names with Shia looking at me because you're going to correct me on some of these uh-huh, names because these are for one of the – I'm looking at the list. Uh, I'll just do a few on this show. We'll do – we'll parcel it out over a few shows. So before we go, thank you to Vada, Vada Rom.
2: <laughs> I have no <laughs> clue. <laughs> <laughs> V-A-
0: V-A-R-A-H-R-A-M. Vara V A V A R A H R A M Vara Rom That sounds Vara Rom yeah. Hemati <laughs> uh Muhammad uh, Hejivandi uh, Nick Zahiri uh, Mahmoud Roshandel and Olga Muhartik oh. Muharti <laughs> Um,
2: again I. I,
0: mean. well, <laughs> I, I, I yeah, assume you've been no help, help. Yeah. please play some music underneath <laughs> me when I do this next time so I can raise meat and say these names oh, boy. Uh, this is full time for Rook today thank you to those folks and to everybody who is uh, supporting us and sharing our content and becoming patrons you can do so by going to the support us button at our website rokamedia.com, where you can see all of our episodes all of our content links to all of our platforms and the latest video from Chef Haas thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week producer Susan Ponta the Artist Thoughtful Degin the Fabulous Keon Chef Haas Savvy Roham Alay Master Muhammad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya Thank you again to all of you out there supporting us and telling people about our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. And you can find me on Instagram at Thank you. And as ever, please, Mizunbashi.